Hello everyone, Trish Guys here, divorce and pre-mediation coach. Welcome to Shit I Learned from My Divorce, a show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. 12 years of trying to live my life while my former partner was trying to destroy it. Trish Guys is not a legal professional, nor a licensed mental health professional. The information she provides is not intended to be legal advice and is intended only for informational and entertainment purposes. Some of the topics on the show may be triggering for some, so please use caution and your own discretion. Topics discussed on the show may not be suitable for young children. I do this show for a couple of very important reasons. The first one being that I feel we need to normalize the behaviors and the craziness that occur during a separation and divorce. It's helpful for both the people going through a divorce and those around them to understand what to expect and how to handle it. Going through a divorce is like nothing else that you will ever experience in life. Number two, I want to prompt you to start thinking about things in a different manner so you don't have to make the same mistakes I did. I also hope to fill some of the knowledge gaps you may have and provide you with some ideas or solutions for what is troubling you at the moment. And most importantly, I would love for you to walk away from each episode just a little bit stronger, feeling a bit more validated and a little more settled because you have a bit of knowledge in your toolkit. So I recommend after listening to each episode, take a few minutes and think about what you've heard. What resonated with you? Do some things seem a bit more clear to you now? Or do you need to do a bit more digging? The whole purpose of my show is to get you to see things perhaps in a different light or for you to slow down or step back a little bit and make sure that you're clear about what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing it as opposed to reacting. Okay, with that in mind, let's get on with the show. So I'd like to step back a bit and just talk about what it is like for children that grow up in a household where there's a lot of conflict or abuse, regardless of which parent it is. So one thing that I often wonder about is, is it possible for children that are raised in an abusive home to grow up to be non-abusive? Because as we said, research shows that abusers are, are, are made, not born. And some people may assume that if that's what they grew up with, that's what they can become. What are your thoughts on that? Is it possible to grow up in a household like that and not be an abuser? I believe it is. Uh, I know that statistics tells us that uh, in many cases, the children that grow up in families that are abusive and uh, alcoholic, et cetera, et cetera, have a propensity for large percentage. However, there are exceptions. And I think the exceptions are based on a number of factors. I, you know, based on my background as an educator, having dealt with families, having dealt with uh, guidance counselors who have a you know, dealt with these students and being an administrator, I was aware of what was happening. Some of the things that have occurred are as follows. Students that have parents that are abusive, be it one parent or both parents, if they are fortunate enough to have a strong character, and whatever that means is, is you know, is obvious, you know, to interpretation, but if they are strong, they have a strong character. And the tendency is sometimes to look at the behavior the parents are exhibiting and then compare it to behavior that they see other parents or adults and compare and then choose to move in the direction that is more comfortable for them or more acceptable to them. 
Now, I'm not saying it's easy for them to do that, but there have been cases that I'm aware of where that has occurred, where they have moved away. Now, I can't tell you the percentages because I did not do any research relative mm -hmm. to the uh, you know quantity of individuals. Mm -hmm. However, I know for a fact this has happened. Uh, mm -hmm. There are cases of uh, alcoholic parents where children have turned out to be totally <laughs> abstainers from alcohol. So, you know, those are the possibilities. But again, it's based on a number of variables. It's based on uh, character. It's based on reward system. That is, have they had positive reinforcement from others mm -hmm. that has proven successful to them and has given them the opportunity to rise above that? Mm -hmm. And if so, well, then they become successful. Yeah, you know, that makes sense. I'd like to think, you know, we're, we're higher power beings. We have free will. We have choice, thought. Sometimes we only have a choice between two really nasty alternatives, but we do have that choice. Sometimes all the choice we have is how we perceive things or how we conceptualize them in our minds. But I, I have to go on believing that. And I know of people who have been in grown up in abusive homes or unhealthy homes and have not only not become abusers, but have become like a beacon or a blueprint for other people, I've looked up to them and I very much use them as my gauge and my judge or my, my judgment line for my own behavior, but other people's behaviors too. I, I don't want people to grow up or as an adult to use that as an excuse. There are reasons why we are the way that we are. We are influenced by whatever experiences we've had, but that does not mean now that that is set in stone and that a lot of what was said today and a lot of what you've said gives me great hope because it tells me that we all, I don't want to say we all have a choice because that's just too pat, but that kids don't have to feel that this is just because this is all they know, or this is all that they have been taught that invariably that's how their life will end up being. And I think it does become easier to see that hope or to feel that hope when you do see others experiencing something different, or you do have somebody oftentimes as a teacher, it really is in my experience, your experience, other people's experience, everybody out there, I think has that one teacher that made that difference. Good and bad, mm -hmm. but good, where you think they changed the trajectory of my life. I think for my son, for instance, grade four math teacher. And unfortunately, because my memory is so bad, guys, I wish I knew his name. But if I remember, I will say it in another episode. He was honestly a god because up until then, my son struggled with math or so he thought he did. But it was being taught in a very stereotypical way. And he was having trouble with it and became very, very down on himself. And, you know, characterized himself as not being good at math. This guy came along and he understood because he struggled with the same thing. And it's the first time in that kid's life where he saw an alternative. He didn't see himself as being dumb because he was starting to feel that. And this teacher sat with him and told him what his experience was and normalized it and actually explained the situation with other kids that sometimes it may look like they get it, but they don't truly understand it. And what he did is he validated my son's way of doing things, which was totally different. And he would only make one small mistake and he'd go off onto, you know, of course he'd get the wrong answer. But from then on, my son has, to this day, doesn't believe that there's only one way of doing things. He is okay with if he does things differently. And I tell you that like he could have, a kid could have, our child could have gone on to be sick into depression and feel he's not good at anything. But instead, this teacher showed him that there's nothing wrong with him. I just think it's huge, you know, that the influence we have to understand, the influence we have on the people around us. And uh, of course, now I've kind of gone off on a tangent like I tend to do, but that just, that was just really such a impactful thing for me to witness. And you've probably seen that thousands of times in your life over the year, very 43 so. years. Yeah. Like, very, it just, very much so. 
But I think that there's another aspect that I neglected to mention is that when it comes to, uh, you know, through the educational system that I participated in, uh, I have seen a number of occasions where males specifically, because, you know, at, at that time, males tended to be the ones who were identified as being more of the aggressor or an abuser or whatever you want to call it. I have seen a number of, of situations, you know, and these students now are adults where uh, for a male, the right female came along in a relationship that has helped to guide them. And I know that, you know, the psychologists have said this and research has indicated that you can't fix a person. Mm -hmm. You can't change a person. And that may be true. However, I know factually that there have been cases where a person, namely a female, has helped to assist in some way that individual to rise above their background and become a much more productive human being in our society and a member in a relationship that became positive. They went through their assistant, assistance, pardon me, they have helped this individual or these individuals to rise from dysfunctionality into a so-called relatively normal way of life. That's fascinating. That's a very impactful statement. Can you give us some ideas as to, and not that this should be a blueprint for anybody necessarily, but, but just some idea as to what were some of the things those individuals did do to bring these people from, as you say, rising from dysfunctionality to some sense of normalcy? Because that, that is a huge, I don't even know what other word to, to describe it, but that really, again, changing the trajectory of somebody's life. It's, it's such a big yeah. deal. Well, factually, again, because I don't want to speak in theory here too much, mm -hmm. but on two occasions, on two occasions, I know for a fact, when I have spoken to these two males, they've indicated that they learned and they were helped to understand the idea of respect, okay, for females. And based on that respect, it seemed like the female that was involved in this relationship used that interaction of respect to take charge and become uh, involved in this relationship, knowing that this individual was respectful and she could help him to develop the other aspects that would take him from dysfunctionality to relative normalcy. Do you think there was some sense of, to these individuals who taking a person from dysfunctionality to normalcy, was there some element of showing, teaching, telling that person the, that came from a dysfunctional background that they are okay, that they're normal, that allowed them to be themselves. Because I imagine, well, and I've seen it myself in my own children too, where when you are in an environment where there's a lot of conflict, a lot of emotion, a lot of you know abuse, coercive or physical, doesn't matter. Anytime there's a lot of strife like that, children sometimes have difficulty either knowing who they are, becoming who they are, or comfortable being who they are, because they are always who they need to be to survive, or they're always who their parents need them to be, and they're always on eggshells. And so imagine growing up, if that's all you know, that becomes ingrained in you. That's what your brain does to make allow you to survive. So these people who help these people, was there some sense of they made the person from the dysfunctional background realize you can be yourself, it's okay. You can find out who that is and be yourself, and it's safe to do so. Yes, I, I think you make an excellent point there. I strongly believe, again, that 
these females, these two females, because there were two situations, were probably brought up in an environment where they saw the parents interact in such a way as to create a positive, welcoming environment where these, you know, the, the female's mother and father would safely interact, would safely disagree without any negative impact of one another's relationship. So I think this individual must have learned how to do that and how to create an environment for now this new so-called person that was mm -hmm. from a dysfunctional family, where it created an environment that was more welcoming, more safe, if you will, so they could take a chance. Now, the reason I say this, because the dysfunctional individual was showing respect. I mm -hmm. believe that if there was no respect, I don't think this would have happened. So Good there point. is a give and take here. But I, I believe that that's what happened, is that the female took the charge of allowing that individual, the dysfunctional one, to feel comfortable, to, to, to be in a mm -hmm. welcome place where they could or had the possibility to have a choice of oh. becoming more positive, more interactive, and more respectful within a relationship. Yeah, you know, I, I, can, I think that through as you're talking, and I think, you know, what a difference it would be going from chaos dis and chaotic dysfunction to a place, and it would probably feel weird at first, and always waiting for the other shoe to drop, but to eventually, once the defenses can come down safely, to realize it's okay to be me, you're, you're in a safe environment, your neurons don't have to be firing all the time. And of course, it makes sense. Like you said, it makes it so much easier to take a risk, knowing that if something doesn't go well, that's okay. You're not a bad person. It's just the behavior or it's just the activity. It's no big deal. We can move on. And and I don't think there's enough of that. Even as adults, oftentimes we don't get that. It seems like everyone's on edge all the time waiting for the next shoe to drop. And I, I can attest to that. I felt like that too in my after my last marriage and during my divorce, it took me years of therapy and all sorts of other things to not be firing in all cylinders all the time because it does affect every single one, every single person around you and every single relationship. But I like what you said too, in that I don't want people hearing this and thinking, oh, well, like you said, I can fix them. No, it's not even about fixing. There's nothing to fix, in my opinion. It is a matter of creating that safe environment. But as long as I love the caveat that that person's being respectful, if you're not being respectful, then you're on your own. Like it really, and it's not meant to be a general statement or you know pie in the sky. But if we don't have respect, I'm sure you can agree with this. I don't know if anything else truly matters. It's like what yeah. I say to parents too: that if your kids can't function in life, they don't know how to make a bed, they don't know how to do taxes, they don't know how to do all these other things. I don't care if they're a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever it is that they want to be. I don't care. Or if you can't be a good person to people. I really don't care what it is you do. I care how you treat other people, you know, how you treat people who can't do anything for you. It's that kind of thing, right? And that all just boils down to respect, as you've been saying this entire time, which if you get nothing else out of this, these episodes, that is key. Every time you do say or, or, or take or give something, it has to be done in a respectful manner. I know growing up, and I'm sure you were taught this too, that I not only was taught it, but saw it. You treat everyone with respect, Sometimes, you know, you can make a decision after if you're not treated with respect, you can handle it differently. But it doesn't matter if you're the CEO, the caretaker, whoever, it that doesn't matter what you do, it's who you are. Exactly. And I think what, what we need to get away from is that judgmental mentality that someone doesn't deserve respect. They have to earn it and all that. Mm. Well, you know, that, that's, that's a subjective point of view. But my belief is that I will treat you with dignity and respect 
until proven otherwise detrimental. Right. Okay. So if I keep telling you, you know, treating you with dignity and respect and we're having a good relationship, that's one thing. But if you keep spitting in my face after I've tried and tried, it's going to be difficult to keep mm-hmm. respect and dignity in this. Mm-hmm. So we have to be realistic in our expectations. But right. I still believe that the baseline should always be treat with respect and dignity and see where it goes. Because I think if we teach our youngsters mm-hmm. this, what I call baseline of respect and dignity, to me, that's a basis. And if you have that basis, you can make inroads. If you don't have that basis, it's going to be almost impossible to do any constructive learning. I agree. I think that, you know, like a lot of the archaic way of thinking of whether it's in sport or in life where I'll go back to sport. So many times I've heard from people where, again, particularly the hockey, but other sports too. I didn't experience this, but a lot of my male counterparts have where the coaches are really rough and being very derogatory and 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 doing lines all the time and running running laps and, and a lot of punishment, a lot of fear involved, that kind of thing. And and I know some people who have experienced that have actually said to me that, well, no, it was good. It motivated me. I thought, no, probably the fear of death or or physical punishment was what motivated you. It wasn't that because that's how you want to be spoken to. I I I, I will go to my death believing that that is the most toxic thing that you can do and it's unnecessary. And I think we need to move away from that because. How can a person grow up? And I know in my own experience, sports or any kind of extra activity, when a child puts a lot of time, effort, and, and love into something, you take that with you and that experience with you into your adulthood, and it does shape you, good or bad. So it worries me when I hear these stories, even to this day, it, you know, and hazing and garbage like that happening in different sports. It's hard for people to then switch that off and thinking, oh, that was just at sport. I'm not going to do that in real life. No. Again, back to the Hockey Canada. That's that's why that happens is because we have normalized those behaviors when it is not normal, it's not appropriate, and we have to stop it at the first sight of it, no matter where it is happening in life. That's true. But I, I think we have to also be realistic in, in the sense that we can't generalize or be absolute in our statements that fear is bad. Because I know from my own experience that a little bit of fear has helped me in my life too. And I don't mean scary fear or, right. or neg- you know, things that are so bad that uh, are counterproductive. But let me use an example here. Uh, when I was uh, just learning how to drive, you know, I was afraid of the police because if, if I got a ticket for my so-called speeding, well, then I would have been in trouble. So there's a little bit of fear. <laughs> so, yeah, the right thing to do is not to speed because you should yes. be driving properly. But it's nice to have a little bit of fear in the background, knowing that if you get caught, you're going to get your, uh, you know, <laughs> consequence that is going to be very, very uh, negative. Right. So so we have to be realistic. And depending on the rationale that you use, when I was in sports, I also believe that I wanted to succeed. I want to do the best I can. But I also had this little bit of element of failing. You know, I, I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to look bad. I wanted to, you know, look good. So there was a little bit of fear of failure in there. Now, if fear of failure is the only thing you have, we have a problem. Right. But also, if you are so cocky that your success is the only thing and I can do whatever, that's also bad. So there has to be some moderate and acceptable balance between being realistic and being, you know, slightly fearful. And I don't know what that is because each individual can and should do this on their own. It mm-hmm. just, there shouldn't be extremes. That's all. I agree. I agree. Do you think that 
you know, because I, I do, it's the extreme of fear or even just the extreme of, oh, you can do no wrong. I, that's, that's, I see a lot of that too. And that is, yeah. is not very realistic. And I, I don't think we need that. Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, the fear of, you know, if you don't run this, I don't know, this line or the, this lap in so-and-so did so much time in however many seconds, you're going to be benched and things like the things that aren't mm-hmm. really yes. yeah. necessary. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. and you know what, that really does warp a person's mind. But do you think that we've talked a little bit about, you know, young people growing up in an abusive household, that they don't necessarily grow up to be abusive? Two things. I wonder, do you think people who grow up in an abusive environment fear turning up just like that? Just like if you have an alcoholic parent, do people fear? And I know a lot of people who grew up with an alcoholic parent who won't touch alcohol because they're so fearful of ending up like that. I've also heard of people, particularly males who've been sexually assaulted as a young person, they're afraid to even touch their children or change their diaper or do anything like that for fear. They they, can't, they don't know if there is a correlation or if God forbid they turn out just like them. Do you think that is often what happens with people? And Because I imagine that would affect the relationships going forward in life. You know, as I say, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, based on what I've learned through my life and my own experiences, it depends on your character. And if you've had good experiences in terms of comfort and, and, and if you are comfortable with who you are and you have a, you know, a value system that, that uh, is relatively within the normal range, whatever that may mean to you, you'll have a tendency to be a little bit more guarded, if you will, mm-hmm. if you have a background like that. Because as human beings, we have been exposed to certain things. And, and at the back of our mind, I think there's always, wait a minute, if there is a situation that approximates that, geez, mm-hmm. is it possible that I have a tendency or, I don't know, mm-hmm. am I going to be subjected to, I think that's human nature, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe that people who have been exposed to or, or have grown up in an environment of abuse automatically become abusers. And as I said, you know, if their character is strong, if mm-hmm. they have some adults that are nurturing, if they've experienced positive reinforcement, if they've seen how quality adults help you to become a better person or make you feel better, I think there's a tendency for you not to turn out that way. Yeah, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. And it also gives people hope because I don't think we uh, we have to be a product of our upbringing, good or bad. We we aren't just something to be molded. And then now as soon as we turn 18, that's as good as it gets. I think we evolve. Uh, we, we all do. I imagine you still do too. We all do. It doesn't matter what stage of life we're in. I think you stop living if you don't continue to evolve in some way, shape or form. There's always something new to learn and there's always something to improve. And that's that's part of life. Instead of seeing it as change and fixing, I see it as, oh, well, learning. I mean, I'm much better at certain things than I was as a kid. You know, it's funny when kids learn how to walk, I say this all the time, but they never just give up and say, that's it. I'm not walking. After I've fallen the 20th time, that's it. I'm done. I'm a failure. I'll never walk again. They just keep getting up. And actually, if you, if you watch kids for the most part, they enjoy it. They, they typically don't get super frustrated and then just stop trying. It's fun. It's all part of the process. And I think somewhere along the way in our lives, we lose that joy of learning and, and not failing, but okay, that didn't work. We're going to try something else, but kids are so 
ingenious and they, they try different ways or crawling. Like my, my son never crawled the normal way. He did that kind of scooting and man, was he fast. He never learned how to do it the other way. In fact, he didn't walk until he was, I don't know, 17 months old because why would he? He was so darn fast that way. But if that happened as an adult with a similar situation, I think we would see that as a failure and we need to really switch our mindsets because it, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't need to work that way and it shouldn't work that way. Yes, I, I believe that that is true. But, you know, there's one thing that I uh, neglected to add mm. to that previous point that uh, we were making about children coming from uh, dysfunctional families to some extent. Mm-hmm. One of the most prevalent and the stronger kind of influences as far as I've witnessed through my career in education is peer group, especially mm. for males. So if a male comes from a dysfunctional family, and yet he's fortunate enough to be in a group that has kids that have come from a relatively normal, non-abusive or non-majorly dysfunctional families, they have a tendency to see the light, if you will, Mm. and be conditioned to uh, sort of, I don't know if there's such a thing, lose Mm. their dysfunctionality Mm. or or be so-called unconditioned when it comes to that as being the norm. So their new norm would be what the group is doing. So yeah, I think there's yeah. always hope. There's always hope. And I think that there's a ton of hope too. Even if you don't have a peer group, but you have teachers or other influential people in your life and or even extracurricular activities, whether it be sport, art, music, whatever, I find it's very healthy for kids from functional and dysfunctional families to have, if possible, something that's separate from the family, something that's their very own, something where they can find themselves and just be them and not worry about all the other stuff that goes on. And so like you say, I, I like that where the new norm can be their own new functionality now. They don't have to be stuck in that dysfunctional mindset. Yes. Some, some hope. So one last thing before we, we uh, sign off, I was wondering, so we talk about kids and that there is hope and they can, depending on who they're with, whether it's another individual or a peer group, that there's hope they can see the light. Do you think it's possible for adults, particularly adult males, who have not been able to have that opportunity and have become abusive or not very healthy, is there hope for them? And this is a general, just an opinion uh, that I'm looking for. Are there chances for them, depending on what goes on, to see the light and to become functional as opposed to staying in that dysfunctional mindset? Again, I'm not an expert on this. As I said, my education has not been my the field of education that I was in is usually you know up to a high school level. So I have not dealt with adults at that, but just based on you know what I can determine based on all the knowledge that I have and experiences, I think it's difficult, not impossible, but difficult. But I think through uh, formal behavior modification, whatever that may entail through uh, group therapy, through individual therapy, through being part of, again, a group of males, if you get lucky enough to be that are less dysfunctional or Mm -hmm. are not in the same vein of dysfunctionality that you are in, you may be able to do that. And if by any chance you are lucky enough to have a partner or seek a partner or get a partner that is helping you to be feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that combination might help you to get out of that abusive or dysfunctional rut. Now, uh, again, I don't know for a fact, but 
you know, being an optimist and seeing how kids yes. have learned, I think it is possible in some instances. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can make a general statement because I've seen right. few cases of abusers where no matter what happens, uh, only incarceration <laughs> would be, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the answer. Exactly. It's, it's case by case, that's for sure. But for those that there's even people who want to change, I mean, I can't believe for the most part, there are some people who are capable of thinking this, but not many people I know want to hurt people. We do end up hurting people. We don't want to. And some people have difficulty. They don't know why they do this. And, and by no means am I feeling sorry for abusers or anything of that nature. But there, I, I have to believe that there's some people who can, if given the opportunity or seeking the opportunity, they can make some changes. If not, then uh, we need to protect people from them. And uh, instead of giving a bunch of do-overs and, and mulligans and saying, hopefully, well, let's hope for the best and hopefully it works out. Hopefully they do the right thing when they have yet to do the right thing up to that point. Before we wrap yep. up, is there anything else that you want to add that we haven't touched on or leave us with uh, a bit more wisdom? Well, I don't know if it's <laughs> wisdom. It's just a, a, an opinion, and I do have strong opinions. <laughs> and one of the opinions that I have is that, unfortunately, aside from all the positive things that we should be doing, one of the positive things that has not been done, in my view, is that accountability for adults who transgress severely. And when I mean transgress severely, I mean those who are child abusers, partner abusers, et cetera, et cetera, are not being dealt with severely enough because the consequences are minuscule compared to the damage they have done. And I believe that there should be something done. There better be something done to those individuals in order to minimize the negative effect on our society and humanity. That's it. And I couldn't have said it better. Nobody else, I don't think, can say that better. And we're going to leave it at that note because that is everything that everyone should take from these episodes of nothing else is that is very, very key. Thank you for coming on to the show. And we've got some great episodes. I think this is going to be either a two or a three-parter. And uh, it was just such a pleasure having you and hearing your perspective on things. It was real, it was practical, and there's so much that people can take from what you believe, shared with us today. Believe me, it was Really, my pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Wonderful. Shit I Learned from My Divorce is written by me, Trish Guys, and produced by Barry Guys. Audio editing and sound design is by Barry Guys. I would love to have you tell a friend or a family member about this podcast, and you can help me share the important concepts I cover by leaving a rating and review of Shit I Learned from My Divorce on Google Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stay up to date on the latest from me or to contact me, visit my website, trishguys.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-G-U-I-S-E. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trish Guys, and on Facebook and Instagram at Trish Guys Divorce Coach. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Shit I Learned From My Divorce with me, Trish Guys, Divorce and Pre-Mediation Coach. Until next time, be good to yourself and to your kids.